2: Of price action. It's hard to tell. We had three big central bank decisions last week. I wouldn't run away with a clean, neat narrative of the back of Friday's move.
3: No, there is no clean, neat narrative. Although if we're going to give it one, Bill Lee has a, a bird's eye view, not only on the United States and Europe, but also on China. And I do want to get to China. Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute. But before we get there, I want your sense of some of the moves that we saw in the bond market, the whipsawing action that we saw, people pricing in rate hikes, and then frankly, going absolutely in the other way. In some places it made sense, in others, not so much. Does this mean to you that we are going to see slower growth? Is there any fundamental narrative that we can pin to this?
4: The one thing that came out of the Bilkin Global Conference is that economists and market practitioners and portfolio managers really have a very different view of inflation. Uh, uh, The the portfolio managers and and bond managers were all obsessed with the fact that prices are high and could go higher. Uh, And and this notion of transitory is just completely foreboding. Economists are still towing the Fed line, which says that we have some transitory but persistent influences keeping prices high. And and one of those influences is the fact that we have these bottlenecks slowing down growth. That's really the key. How much is growth going to be slowing down and how much of the future is being priced in on the, on the slowdown side and how much of it is the persistent high price. And that's where you see the tension.
3: And Bill, a lot of this is actually stemming from what's happening in China as the communist party uh, meets for its annual plenum. I am wondering the price increases that we're seeing there. How much does this indicate, frankly, a protracted increase in prices around the world that people perhaps are not accounting for this sort of, uh, or deglobalization and frankly changed regime in China filtering into prices and slower growth globally.
4: China is really being hit by a confluence of, of domestic and global factors. Uh, this, the, the one thing that we see in China, which is almost a microcosm of what we're seeing globally, is the sense that producer prices are double digits. They're rising by 10 percent. And yet consumer prices are, are maybe 0.7 percent and project to go up to 1.4 percent this uh, with the new release. Uh, and, and that's where you see the authoritarian control of being able to manage retail prices and, of course, at the expense of, profit compression. One of the things that they're banking on is that Xi Jinping's leadership, and that's what they're, they're trying to, to, to have a historical review to justify, is that Xi Jinping's leadership will produce enough productivity gains to be able to keep margins up and to keep Chinese companies profitable.
2: Is that lifelong leadership, Bill, a growing risk for this economy? Boy, you know, John,
4: that everyone is 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 really looking toward the sense of how is it that Xi Jinping is going to be able to pull off the, the the return to Mao's doctrines of common prosperity, creating a moderately prosperous economy for everyone, and at the same time focus innovation on domestic sources and domestic sources of growth and domestic sources for export and at the same and, and, and keep it done in a way that uh, allows the rest of the world to be part of China's growth. The the Xi Jinping leadership is, is something that they're gonna come out with and say, The one thought we have to keep in mind is that Mao Zedong allowed China to stand up and unify China. Uh, Deng Xiaoping made China rich. But Xi Jinping, who is the one who has made China strong and allows China to stand up among the League of Nations as the first among equals. That's the historical review that will come out in this meeting to justify, we need Xi Jinping's leadership. That's the rhetoric. And I think the sacrifice is going to be toward focusing on domestic growth, sacrificing innovation, and, and doing it in a way that preserves this Communist Party's power as opposed to productivity and growth.
2: Bill, you mentioned the power on the international stage. What about domestically? How strong is that power right now?
4: You know there are mixed reports. Um, from the outside, it looks like there's a unified front. Xi Jinping has, you know, got abolished term limits, and now he's in for life. But he's worried that he's not going to get enough support to be able to carry out these policies. It's not so much at the top levels that he's he's afraid of, but the municipal governments and and, and state and local governments that have to implement these policies. There's a huge tension right now. Let's say uh, caused by, say, the energy crisis. Uh, the 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 federal government sucks in all the taxes, but the federal the the local state and local governments have to manage their expenditures and, st- and, and manage their budgets. That tension between state and local governments and the federal government is something that Xi Jinping has to manage. And between now and the time of the next uh, national party's Congress, uh, uh, National People's Congress in, in next year, that has to be solidified because he has to have a unanimous call for him to stay in power.
5: Do we see uh, a slowdown in growth that becomes a problem for the global economy, Bill, in China?
4: Oh yeah, because right now China is suffering from an energy crisis, which is snarl production and transshipments. Uh, the 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 notion of having a common prosperity has uh, has has really focused uh, Chinese policy on hitting the most productive companies in all of China, the, the the Internet companies. They're also hitting on education, which is something that they've been trying to use to try to bootstrap themselves to increase human capital. So managing these policies is something that we uh, in the West would have to worry about as investors because the role for investment is going to be clearly not one, not a primary role, but only insofar as Western investment will help China become, a uh, help try to be a, a, as a manufacturing conduits to the rest of the world. If you can help China take its innovations out to the rest of the world, you've got a successful business. If you're in a competing business with Chinese innovation, you're in trouble.
5: But longer term, I mean, does this uh, have the potential to cement Xi's legacy as one of the most successful leaders? Can he really achieve common prosperity?
4: That's the big bet. Um, I, we know that uh, Shenzhen, for example, is a model city in uh, China's Silicon Valley. It's become successful because it was copying China's model, uh, Hong Kong's model of innovation, which is to experiment. Xi Jinping's latest uh, speech on Shenzhen says you should innovate with this toward the needs of the center. In other words, they're managing the direction of innovation. They're managing the direction in which these companies have to focus their growth. That's a dangerous game because that may or may not work. And most of the experience we've had with managed growth and, and industrial policy is that most
2: industrial policies fail. Hey, Bill, thank you, sir. As always, it's good to catch up. Bill Lee there of the Milken Institute Let's get to George Saravelos, Global Head of FX Research at Deutsche Bank out of London. George, always good to catch up with you, sir. I want to start right here. It's something Lisa's been on top of through this morning. What did you make of the bond market move off the back of really solid payrolls data in America? George, did that make sense to you?
1: Good morning, John. So, I think it's just worth taking a step back and looking at this year. And if you think about what's been thrown at the bond market, you've had the highest inflation in 30 years, had the fastest growth rates um, essentially on, on record. Uh, and yet, if you take a look at the, the long end of the US curve, five year, five year, real rates, breakevens, nominals, They're basically where they were in February. Uh, And I think that pattern uh, we saw on Friday is is part of of this theme that there's something bigger going on in the bond market than just the inflation story. Uh, And to me, it's been a story of... Excess savings, very low R-star, and I think unless we understand what is going on there, it's going to be very, very difficult to understand anything else in the market at the moment.
3: Well, George, it's your job to try to understand it. So what are some of the theories that you're coming at, especially as we hear all these discussions, that the savings rate is coming down, that people are actually spending their savings, and yet we are not seeing a material change in the outlook for yields, at least as portrayed by the bond market?
1: So, if you go back to the 2000s, uh, you also had the Bond conundrum back then. It was called the Greenspan conundrum, and it ended up being China. Um, I think this new source of excess savings now in the market is uh, essentially the fiscal uh, stimulus we had uh, last year and if you look at what's happened to that even though saving rates are coming down saving rates are a flow concept Uh, what happened to all the money that was given last year in payouts it's been stored in bank accounts and then if you look at what banks are doing banks are using those deposits and going back and buying fixed income again Um, So when I I look at a lot of the flow metrics, they're just suggesting a recycling of savings. Obviously, that's what's keeping asset prices elevated. Uh, But then there's also this additional question of where is trend growth. And is trend growth coming down, meaning central banks won't be able to hike as much. And if you look at some indicators, uh, for example, the spread between forward-looking and backward-looking consumer confidence metrics, that's suggestive of a very, very, very flat curve. And some curves are starting to invert, for example, in emerging markets. So I'd say... Uh, Number one, flow, flow, flow. There's huge amount of excess saving in the system. And number two, terminal rates are also pretty low. So even though we're pricing a lot in the front ends, you're really struggling to price the back end.
5: George, a lot of that, uh, those excess savings has gone into crypto. Um, The total market cap of cryptocurrencies is now more than $3 trillion. Uh, What do you make as uh, chief of FX research on Bitcoin at 66 grand?
1: so crypto is an area we're starting to look at as well Uh, obviously as the market size is growing it becomes of of bigger relevance Uh, but to me the ultimate again it's a symptom of these excess savings in the market that are trying Uh, to find a home and then of course we need to look at the impact of crypto uh, in in terms of the the structure of payment systems and I think that's probably one of the most underestimated areas uh, or underappreciated areas of crypto these new developments in decentralized finance they have the potential to uh, change the way the banking system looks Uh, in 10 years. And we're also trying to spend a bit of time understanding that as well.
2: George, before you run, let's talk about a currency pair you've been following closely. It's cable, the pound, sterling against the US dollar, 135.26. Just looking at our forecast in our survey, forecast into year end, 137, just a little bit north of where we are at the moment. George, where are you on that currency pair at the moment, given what we heard from Governor Bailey in the past week?
1: Uh, So we have been negative on the pound since September. It it proved quite difficult to hold on to that view as you saw that massive repricing in the front ends. But the key observation here is the repricing was entirely driven by inflation expectations. Real rates in the UK have stayed uh, very, very low. We're worried about the growth outlook in terms of a big fiscal tightening that's coming in. Uh, And then, of course, you have these new Brexit risks. Uh, There is a genuine risk that the entire deal unravels. So uh, we maintain um, a a bearish view on the pound. And I think the risks are you see cable, for example, break uh, to new uh, multi-week lows in coming weeks. Interesting. Could we not do Brexit again? I thought we were done with that,
2: George. (laughs) Honestly, George Saravellos there of Deutsche Bank out of London in our headquarters in the City of London too. That's good to see We start with John Stolfus, the chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management. John, great to catch up, sir. We've got an infrastructure agreement down in Washington. I'll head to D.C. in a couple of moments to catch up with Anne-Marie Horden, a Washington correspondent on that. The data in America, the ISM last week, the payrolls report is decent. The chairman is patient. For an equity market bull like you, John, are you feeling good?
0: Yeah, I'm feeling very good about it. I think last week was was celebration of all of the above of what you just mentioned. But beyond that, what you've got is this week you will probably get uh, you know a little bit of testing uh, and some people take short term profits in here. Uh, but the direction looks up from here to the end of the year. The fundamentals are good. And we are about where we should be based on all that happened in 2020 and since then both positive and negative.
3: All right, here until the end of the year, what about after that, John, when people are talking about how it gets a little bit trickier with potentially Fed rate hikes, with potentially uh, harder comps year over year?
0: I I, I think, first first off, Lisa, I think the market wanted to see the Fed taper. Uh, I think uh, the market feels at at least it's got a six-month period uh, uh, next year where the Fed will be tapering. Uh, And then after that, they'll be worried about where do they take the Fed funds rate. But the reality is, uh, when we look at it from our perspective, and as you know, I've been in this business for 38 years, the Fed is a very different Fed than it was uh, under Arthur Burns or under uh, uh, Greenspan. This is the Bernanke legacy Fed, highly transparent, Uh, it is highly communicative, Uh, it it telegraphs moves, and the market uh, denies what the Fed sees uh, or market players do at their own expense. Uh, you know, the Fed is your friend during this period. It's been
5: the friend to Main Street and to Wall Street, if you look at it. Even with friends like the Fed, can we really do better than a 29% gain year-to-date, John, on the S&P? I mean, that's up there with the greatest gains of all time. Well, you,
0: you know, about the, uh, everybody forgets the S&P uh, 600, the small cap, higher quality uh, small caps than the Russell 2000. Has actually been beating uh, the S&P 500 this year, we'd have to think, you know, this is all about uh, the, the the better comps that we've had for earnings season. But the better comps, uh, the reality of it, even though, you know, it's a softer hurdle or a lower hurdle than we've ever seen for, for earnings in that sense on a comparative basis, uh, the, things are getting better. And considering the depth of the crisis, Uh, This is remarkable. It really is when we look at it.
2: John, there's people talking about a reacceleration in the economy into year end, into new year. I'm hearing people talking about the return of the reopening trade back into the small caps, etc. What advice are you giving to clients at the moment on that, John?
0: Uh, We've been saying for actually for a few years now, we're pretty much either near or actually market cap agnostic. So we spread the chips uh, across uh, the table when it comes to large caps, small caps, mid caps. The mid caps are terrific, we believe. Uh, and we also right now are barbelled growth and value. Garpier growth, growth at a re- relatively reasonable price in, in, in growth and value. We want growthier value. You can still get yield uh, uh, that, is, that uh, you know, is better than the 10 year with the potential uh, for capital appreciation.
2: John, always good to catch up with you, sir. John Stolford's there, a bull from Oppenheimer Asset Management. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Joining us now, Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Wendy, I want to start with this. It's something that's come up again and again, time after time, year after year. The Republicans are very diverse as a party, just like the Democratic Party. Senator Hawley is nothing like Senator Romney. Yet when they go out and speak, they're all on message. And then when they need to pivot, they all do and they get back on the very same message. The word echo is phenomenal. Why do the Democrats, Wendy, struggle doing that? Why can't they take the win over the weekend and run with it?
6: Well, there's there's two reasons. One is the Democratic Party regionally, geographically is more diverse. They represent a more diverse set of constituents from you know suburban women, for example, who uh, have supported the Democratic Party recently uh, to working class people uh, all over the country, urban, some rural uh, so it's just really hard when you're representing, you know, uh, a lot of different kinds of people with views. So that's the one problem. And the second problem is they believe in government and they want to do a lot of things in government. They want the federal government to do a lot of things. And that has a lot of costs and benefits to different people. And it takes a while to explain. And the, you know, the advantage of the, of the Republicans is they believe in limited, small federal government. They don't want to do many things. So they can obstruct and block, and it's a much simpler message.
3: Who's getting the independent vote right now, Wendy?
6: I think there's no question that the independents are feeling much more comfortable with Republicans now. That's probably because Trump is out and about, but they don't see Trump as a looming factor in getting it back into power, for example. So they're assessing Republican candidates on their own merits rather than being associated with Trump. That's something the Democrats were counting on. I think they have to revamp their strategy. So you look at New Jersey, obviously a pretty deeply blue state took that Republican candidate quite seriously. That was a narrow victory for the governor of New Jersey. And that really shook up the Democrats. Virginia didn't shake them up quite as much, but an incumbent, theoretically popular governor who's a Democrat, who barely hangs on, that tells liberals, moderates, all the Democrats that they have got to get their act together and revamp because they're all in trouble with that very group, independents and suburban voters.
3: Wendy, what's the analog to today, given the fact that we're seeing inflation as a major voting issue for the first time in decades? How much can we really change the equation heading into midterms if gas prices stay where they are?
6: Well, this is a really important thing. Even you know, a local bakery, for example, I go to, you know, they raise their you know bread prices by 75 cents. They have a fairly low to middle income constituency for that bakery, but they were hit. They had to raise their prices. So it's getting really down to the ground, right? You know, grassroots, people are feeling inflation. It's gas prices, but it's everywhere at every level. And that's what the Democrats haven't quite figured out how to fix. It's their constituency that's getting hurt like everybody else. So and people are pretty cynical and conspiracy oriented about gas prices. You know, they always think they go up automatically. They don't really understand why they go up. And the easiest person to blame is the incumbent government.
5: One of the uh, other concerns is taxes, right? Rising taxes, Wendy. And when you look at, for example, the Build Back Better uh, bill, it's only $1.75 trillion, But actually, if the Democrats get, uh, the majority of them get what they want, it's going to balloon to more of a, like a $4 trillion number. And that has to be paid for. Uh, how do they sell these tax increases to the American public?
6: But well, this is a great question. First of all, it's a 10-year bill, five or 10-year bill. Uh, Infrastructure is five years. This is 10 years, so it's not four trillion tomorrow. That's the first mistake the Democrats have made, right? You know, ballooning this number as if we're spending it all in one year. Uh, but the, the tax situation is interesting. They may raise taxes on people who make, you know, a joint couple $450,000 or more. That's sellable, sort of, if you include uh, a rise in the amount of money you can deduct. So the state and local tax deduction that Trump took away from mostly well-off blue areas in the country, the Democrats are going to put back. And that actually hits people, as suburban voters, right where they need a break. So they're gonna offset, I think, some of these, particularly uh, the highest tax rate, with some of these greater deductions. So I think that's the messaging they're gonna try to engage in to not lose those voters that went with them in 2018 and 2020.
2: Wendy, I just want one more thing to come away from this conversation with you on. What do you think number one obstacle to getting the next bill done is? What does it come down to?
6: It comes down to whether there's a perceived need for all the programs they want to engage, they want to pass. You know, do people really want this? We saw this with Obamacare. Obamacare turned out to be quite successful. But when it was passed in 2009, 2010, voters didn't know what it was and they didn't know they needed it. And they rejected it really in the elections in 2010 and they gave the Republicans the House back. That's the big liability for the Democrats going in with this really big bill. Do people know it, understand it, and do they think they need it? And if they don't, Republicans are going to have a very good November in 2022.
2: Wendy, thank you, as always. Looking forward to catching up soon. Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance
0: Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.